When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to an episode from the Inside the Boards audio blog, brought to you by Med School Tutors. Med School Tutors was founded with a singular purpose, to revolutionize the way aspiring physicians prep for standardized exams. They're the leading experts in one-to-one tutoring for the USMLE, Comlex, shelf exams, medical coursework, and admissions in residency advisement. Med School Tutors. Better starts now. Check them out at medschooltutors.com. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, we are back with another entry in our audio blog series brought to you in conjunction with Med School Tutors. It's Microbiology Part 2, but first, the Top 10 Resources for Struggling Medical Students by Lauren Falcone, published on January 10th, 2018. There is a common misconception in medicine that we as medical providers are supposed to be strong, tireless workers taking care of those in need without needing care of our own. For this reason, we sometimes have trouble asking for help. We may feel asking for assistance is a sign of weakness or worry that we will be stigmatized for supposed shortcomings. But the reality is that at some point in our training, we will all need help. Asking for help doesn't mean you are unfit or unworthy of a career in medicine. It means you want to improve your situation to become a better physician. For many students, medical school is the first time in their life that they begin to face mental, physical, or academic struggles. Fortunately, we don't have to navigate this journey in medicine alone. Many resources are available if we are struggling, feeling overwhelmed, or need emotional or academic assistance. Here are the top 10 resources for struggling medical students. Number one, your family members. Every time I went to pick up my mail in college, I would see a sign hanging in the post office which read, Call your mom. It wasn't until I started medical school that I began to take this to heart. We get so busy with classes and studying that it is easy to lose touch with family every now and then. However, making a point to speak with your family every day is hugely beneficial to your well-being. Even if your family members don't have a background in medicine, they can offer much-needed support and encouragement. Number two, your medical school classmates. No one can better understand what you are going through than your peers. Befriend them, form study groups, or find that one classmate who always seems to have a smile on his or her face and sit next to him in lectures. If needed, venting to your peers about your shared struggles can be quite cathartic and remind you that you are not in this alone. Number three, senior medical students. At many medical schools, it can be difficult to meet senior students outside of your class. However, You might be surprised how helpful and encouraging these students can be if you simply reach out to them. 
I often would email students ahead of me who did well to ask for their opinion about how to prepare for a certain exam or seek advice on how to best balance my workload. Senior students are full of knowledge because they've already survived what you are going through, and most students are more than willing to offer their assistance because they remember what it was like to be in your shoes. Number four, your friends outside of medicine. Having non-medical friends can be very beneficial. Sometimes you just need a break from medical school and will find it relieving to have dinner with a friend and not chat about medicine at all. Meeting members of your community and having friends in other professions will remind you that there really is life outside of medical school. Number five, a tutor. Whether or not you are struggling academically, a tutor can help you maximize your potential. A tutor with expertise in your coursework or board exam can help you prepare to the best of your ability. They know tips and tricks that can give you an extra boost on your exam. If you are struggling, a tutor can help you get back on track by identifying knowledge gaps with you. Having someone else review a difficult topic with you can also help you understand it in a new way. Number six, a mentor. You might not realize that mentors come in many flavors, and it's not as hard to find a good one as it may seem. A simple email to a resident or attending in your field of interest may lead to a long-standing system of support that helps you one day reach their position. Some schools have peer mentors or physician mentoring programs where they automatically pair you with someone willing to help you through your medical school career. Use these people for support and guidance. They want to see you succeed. Number seven, medical organizations. Most medical schools have dozens of interest groups and clubs that you can join. These groups allow you to be surrounded by people with similar interests or career aspirations. Some offer mentorship programs or opportunities to give you more experience in a particular field. Other groups have social events or volunteer opportunities that allow you to recharge and relax. 8. Course Professors I was no stranger to my medical school professors, and I believe that played a big part in my academic success. I took the opportunity to ask a professor a question after class or visit their office hours to meet them face-to-face. Just about all my professors were genuinely interested not only in my medical education, but also my mental and emotional well-being. If you are not performing where you'd like to in a particular subject, a professor can suggest means of improvement or offer advice on how to get back on track. Number nine, the school psychiatrist or counselor. Many schools have psychiatrists or counselors on site to provide students with mental health care. Do not be embarrassed or fearful of using these services if you are feeling overwhelmed, stressed, or depressed. Sometimes just talking to a trained mental health provider will put you at ease. Many medical students or physicians ignore their mental health issues for fear of stigmatization. As medical providers, we must remember that we cannot fully take care of others until we fully take care of ourselves. This stigma will not be broken until we all understand the importance of our mental and emotional well-being. Number 10, the medical school dean. Medical school deans have years of experience working with hundreds of students. You might be surprised how much they can help you. If you are interested in a certain specialty, they can put you in touch with contacts in that field. They eventually write recommendation letters for you and can play a role in your residency match. I remember as a second-year medical student, I did not score as well as I wanted on my comprehensive basic science exam, the CBSE, despite earning great grades throughout the first two years. I emailed my medical school dean with my concerns, and he sent me four quotes from senior medical students who had been in a similar situation as me. 
One student talked about how they felt the CBSE wasn't a great predictor of Step 1 scores for him. Another student talked about how she underperformed on the CBSE simply because she was burnt out at the end of the year, but she recharged and scored significantly higher on Step 1. Receiving this email from my dean helped to change my mindset and finish out my med school year strong. However, your deans can only help you if you let them know you need assistance. Keep in mind that medical school is not easy for anyone. At some point, we should all ask for help, whether that comes in the form of emotional support from our parents or spouse, academic assistance from a professor or tutor, or career guidance from a mentor. Please remember that you don't have to navigate medical school alone, and never be afraid to ask for help. Hi, everybody. This is Greg Rodden. I'm host of the Med School Fizz podcast, and I'm here to help the team at Inside the Boards in their collaboration with Med School Tutors. This Med School Tutors blog post is titled, Now That's What I Call High Yield, Microbiology Part 2, written by Brian Radvansky on July 3rd, 2018. Despite our best efforts, the entirety of microbiology for Step 1 could not be condensed into a single post. Even compressing things down into two posts was difficult. We felt tremendous guilt leaving out information which seemed crucial, but there simply isn't enough space when we're only trying to get the highest yield information together. Forgive us for this second post and enjoy the information contained therein. If you're just joining us now, start on Micropart 1 of the two-part series. The first section here is on diarrhea. Diarrhea, as we all know, is a medical condition that everyone is afflicted with at some point or another, with excellent overlap to pediatrics. You're going to want to know your ETEC from your EHEC and be able to categorize pathogens as causing bloody versus watery diarrhea. As a caveat, remember that not all diarrhea has an infectious etiology, i.e. think about things like osmotic diarrhea, inflammatory bowel disease, toxin ingestion, and withdrawal. The next section is on pneumonias, one of the most classic pathologies that we need to know about. We can guarantee that pneumonia will show up on your step one exam and your medicine rotation. Get familiar with clinical severity and chest x-ray findings. For example, you'll see really bad pneumonia with lobar opacities for strep pneumo and a more indolent presentation with diffuse bilateral infiltrates for the atypicals. Know how to cover for particular pathogens. Respiratory fluoroquinolones or macrolides work well for outpatient treatment, for example, levofloxacin and azithromycin. Inpatients deserve a hearty IV antibiotic to cover strep pneumo. Often it's going to be ceftriaxone, along with some atypical coverage like azithromycin. If pseudomonas is a concern, as it is with ventilator-associated pneumonia, make sure you have pseudomonal coverage too. The next section is on vaginal infections. The unholy triumvirate of bacterial vaginosis, trichomonas, and candida will likely appear on your test. The takeaways here are the symptoms and discharge type, as well as the treatment, i.e. metronidazole for bacterial vaginosis and trichinosis, or azoles for the fungal candida. Don't get too hung up on the pH findings. The microscopic findings for all of these are important, but they're self-explanatory. The next section is on torches infections. This is a collection of infections that can transmit vertically from mother to fetus, and are often the cause of congenital issues. If you're confronted with a newborn suffering from growth retardation, hepatosplenomegaly, or jaundice, keep these in your differential. Because there are so many overlapping symptoms between the infections, let the history be your guide. So here's a pearl for each. Toxoplasmosis is from cat feces or raw meat. Rubella causes cataracts, deafness, and cardiac issues. 
CMV causes periventricular calcifications in the brain. HIV presents with generalized immunodeficiency. Herpes you'll see in neonates that are exposed to vaginal lesions. And you should suspect syphilis in patients with facial abnormalities, saddle nose, and maxillary shortening. The next section is on antibiotics and anti-infectives. So this one's a doozy. One of the most common questions that students come to us with is how to memorize all that needs to be known about antibiotics. The short answer is through flashcards and spaced repetition, in addition to dogged studying. Short of that, in this blog post, we can spend some time trying to tease out what antimicrobials are most important. Because the line must be drawn somewhere, this will be a rapid-fire rundown in one to three sentences of the most important antibiotics from each class. Starting with penicillins. So penicillin is worth knowing, as it stands as the prototypical seminal antibiotic. Also, while penicillin proper isn't utilized terribly often in the hospital, many of its analogs and cousins are. For example, the anti-pseudomonal penicillins, such as piperacillin and ticracillin, are famous for their pseudomonal coverage. The next group is the cephalosporins. Cephalosporins are wildly important. First generation, like cefazolin, are great for staph aureus, i.e. skin flora protection, in the perioperative period. Third generation cephalosporins, like ceftriaxone, can get you a little more gram-negative coverage. There's also the third generation cephalosporin ceftazidine, which can help to cover pseudomonas. Also, the only fourth generation cephalosporin that you need to know is cefepime, which also has pseudomonal coverage. The next group are the carbapenems. Carbapenems are part of your arsenal of big guns. They're very broad spectrum and they're saved for highly resistant organisms. The next one is vancomycin. So vancomycin is a classic and powerful antibiotic utilized for gram-positive coverage, especially for MRSA. As far as aminoglycosides go, the only one that you really need to know about is gentamicin. Gentamicin provides excellent coverage for gram-negatives, but it can really damage the kidneys. The next group that you should know are the tetracyclines, of which doxycycline is the one that you'll most likely see. And tetracyclines are used for intracellular organisms like chlamydia, borrelia, and rickettsia. The next group are the macrolides. The macrolides also cover intracellular organisms. They're also used for atypical pneumonias as well. The next drug that you should know about is metronidazole. Metronidazole is fantastic for anaerobes, especially those below the diaphragm, such as GI and vaginal bugs. Some specific examples where you'll use metronidazole include C. diff, Giardia, Trichomonas, and Gardnerella, or bacterial vaginosis. The next section is on antifungals. If you remember nothing else about antifungals, remember the azoles. The azoles take care of non-life-threatening fungal infections. In contrast, amphotericin, which is not an azole, is your last-ditch effort for severe fungal infections. However, amphotericin can have severe side effects for your patient. And the last section here, the antivirals. Knowing lots of details about the antiviral drugs isn't going to be as important as knowing about antibiotics. To triage them, hang on to the cyclovirs for the treatment of herpes viruses. It's also a good idea to be familiar with some of the prototypical drugs used for HIV treatment. So with that, we'll close out the blog post by saying, again, it feels like a disservice to pack so much information into so little space, uh, like we barely scratched the surface here. Stay tuned for a much deeper look at antimicrobials when the time and space permit. Thanks. And once more, thanks to the band Knights, that's Knights with two eyes, and Sun Petal Recordings for letting us use the song So Into You off Knights' newly released album, Hellebore's 
part one. You can check them out wherever you stream music or click the link in the show notes to hear more on Spotify. So into you, so into you.